Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to jump in your word, Lord. We are grateful, Father, for a time to continue to dig in, Lord, to learn about what is going to happen, Lord, in our future, Lord, what you have written for our future and uh, what has been written in your word, Lord, the book of life. And uh, Lord, that we know that we've got great plans, that we've got a great future ahead of us, Lord, that there's great things that you want to Uh, you want to let us in on. And so, Lord, as we learn more and more about what you are doing, Lord, we pray that you would just go before us, uh, minister to us here, Lord. I pray that the words that I share would be your words, Lord, and not mine, and that, Lord, you just be glorified in and through this time, Lord. Be lifted up now, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, Lord, your goodness to us, and we just ask these things now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 7. And, uh, you know, it's interesting uh, we uh, have continued to see this throughout the Bible. And, you know, this is a bit of a difficult uh, concept, I think, to illustrate, uh, a difficult picture to sort of draw out or grasp. And that is the, the methodology, I think, of teaching uh, throughout the Bible. And uh, oftentimes when the Bible is being taught through, uh, what you will oftentimes see is a different mechanism that is uh, being taught through than what you might see in school today or what you might see on a regular basis uh, through and through. Uh, the most common mechanism that you see when Bible is being taught uh, you know, throughout the scriptures in the old school days, right, at the time of Bible times, is that you would basically see a sort of summary being given to you, right? So you'd have a summary kind of listed and you would say, okay, well, this is the summary, this is the picture, right? And then afterwards, you'll sort of get in sort of a, a, a bit of an in-depth teaching, right? So uh, Jesus did this oftentimes, right? He would sort of give you a bigger picture of what the idea was that he was illustrating and then he would get a little bit more in-depth into it. Sometimes the bigger picture would be taught through a parable or through something like that or, uh, you know, different different types of things like this. And, of course, you would see this time and time again. You'd see a picture being illustrated and then it would sort of focus in and and, and there'd be something a little bit more focused. Now, Revelation, there's no uh, certainly no exception, right? We see this happening. We've talked about this, right? The key to the whole book of Revelation you find in Revelation chapter 1, right, where it talks about... Uh, later on, or let's just read there for just a second. This will kind of make sense as we put this together. Let's read in Revelation chapter 1 what it actually says, because it is. It's the key, and it is something hopefully you have already highlighted in your Bibles. I hope it's a verse that you have uh, highlighted. This is in verse 19. It says, write the things which you have seen, right? That's the first part of Revelation, right? The things which are, right? Which is what you read about in the seven letters to the seven churches, right? That's the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Well, the things which shall be hereafter is that which you see after the seven letters to the seven churches. So you've got a summary in chapter one of what's through the whole chapter or the whole uh, book of Revelation, right? And then in Revelation chapter 6, you see... Um, you know, a very good description of the opening of these seals on the scroll and the opening of the seals on the scroll sort of does the same thing. It kind of gives you a bit of a 
picture of what happens overall, and then you sort of get into this picture of the more specific. So chapter 7 would be deemed or looked at as a bit of a parenthetical in the sense that chapter 7 is sort of uh, giving you a little bit of a description of some of the things that you see, a little bit more honed down description of some of the things that you see in chapter 6, which by the way, you're going to see this throughout the book of Revelation, right? And so this is very common with biblical teaching. It's uh, sort of the picture that's oftentimes given. It's what we oftentimes see. And it's uh, sort of the way it works. So let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 7. And it says this in verse 1. It says, Now after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding four winds, or sorry, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, this is uh, quite a picture, right? First of all, let me just say this. There are people who will actually go to Revelation chapter 7 verse 1 and say, well, this is evidence of the fact that the Bible is dumb. You know, that there's no real, uh, there's no real evidence because it's just ignorant teaching because they're talking about the four corners and we know that the earth does not have four corners. We know that the earth is round, you know? And I always respond to them by saying, really? You really want to think that through for just a second, right? I mean, you can look at a, at a commercial for the United States Marine Corps, and in some of the commercials for the United States Marine Corps, they say, we touch all four corners of the earth, brother, you know? Or, you know, we see this type of phrase being used, and the picture of touching all four corners of the earth has nothing to do with the earth being flat or round. It has everything to do with the fact that every single access, every single uh, covering of the earth is being covered. In other words, the whole earth is being covered. That's the picture, right? The idea is everything is being covered. There isn't a single area on the earth that is not covered. It's a figurative sort of a language. It's, it's, and by the way, the Bible is filled with these types of things. It doesn't mean that everything that you read in the book of Revelation is figurative. This is just something, it's a very common phrase. And look, we have phrases like this all the time, don't we? Uh, I, I do this a lot. You guys will hear me do this a lot. You guys do it a lot, right? I, how many times do we say things like, I told you that a million times, didn't night you know i mean well did you literally say that to somebody a million times if you literally said that to somebody a million times you're a liar because there's no way you can say anything a million times to somebody right and these are figures of speech right these are things that we say and oftentimes if you try to take these things literally they don't even make sense and the english language is filled with instances where we say things that if you tried to take them literally or explain them literally you would look like a bozo you know what I'm talking about? Like here's, here's one of my favorite ones, you know, I, and, and I've, I, I've tried to give this illustration multiple times with working with translators. You know, you go to Israel, okay? Or you go to Russia. How about this? I went to Russia in 1999. My whole purpose in going to Russia was to teach Russian students the Greek language using a Russian translator from my English. Now that is quite a task, okay? Especially in old school Vladimir, okay? So you can't teach a Bible study in Russia and say things like, man, it was a beautiful day the other day. I, 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 after I mowed the lawn, you know, I went out for a jog. Have a Russian translator translate that. Have any translator translate that. What is mowing and what's a lawn? What does it mean to jog? Right? These are words that are not necessarily present in the English language even a hundred years ago, not even thirty years ago. And there's types of, we do things like this all the time. I could run over to, you know, and, and, and depending on the, of the region that you're in, the language can change quite a bit, couldn't it? 
right? Like I could go one in one part of the of the country and I could say, me and you finna have a talk. Now what does finna have a talk mean? Right? Or I could go to Inglewood and I could say, what's cracking, dog? You know? Now am I talking to someone and calling them a dog and saying that something is cracking? You know? I mean, depending on where you go and what part of the, the country you're in or what part of the world or, or wherever you are, language changes. And it does not always imply what it, what you might think it might mean literally. Like, how about this one? This is a popular one. Everybody does this. I do this all the time. I call somebody and I'll say, yo, yo. Right? They'll pick up the phone, yo-yo, and then they answer me, they go, yo-yo. Now, are we both asking for yo-yos? Right? Are we calling for the famous cello player? You know, I mean, what are we doing? I mean, you think about it, these, there's, there is, matter of fact, this is really disgusting. This is actually really true. There's a guy who did his whole PhD on the complexities of the phrase yo-yo within certain cultures. I don't know how that works. I, I don't know what school he went to, but pray for that school anyway. But, but, but the idea is, is that language is so transitive in many ways. So when you say the four corners of the earth, again, it's their way of saying, look, there isn't a single part of the earth that had any wind. Now, this is kind of interesting, especially if you think, I mean, if this happened today, this would be kind of scary. I mean, I, I, I really would, I, I don't think I want Los Angeles to be without wind. Okay? Because Los Angeles was without, was without wind, well then, you know, all the smog would just kind of settle right here. You know, it just wouldn't be very fun. It, we, it, I'd rather that the wind blow and kind of blow off into Las Vegas or Arizona or wherever the, wherever the smog blows off into, you know. But it's nice to have the wind blow in a particular direction, but the wind stops all over the whole earth. Now, this is interesting because the picture that we get here is it's the calm before the proverbial hell of a storm, if you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, this is a scary moment because these angels come and they grab the four corners of the earth. The picture is they have control over the weather on the earth and they shut down all the wind there is no wind that must mean that something real bad is about to happen you know what i'm talking about and and it's it's funny there's there's many pictures of this that i can illustrate but i think of my um my nieces and nephews, and I think of my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law, I call her superwoman because she has, yes, you ready for this? Six children, okay? All natural born, right? All same daddy, all same mommy, right? And they are extravagantly crazy sometimes, right? Why? Because they're children, and children lose their minds, right? They get together in a room, and all you hear is, Wah-ka-la-la! and they're doing their things. That's what kids do. Kids get together, they get loud. And any any man or woman who gets impatient with a kid getting loud and wants to discipline them, well, you better think twice because that's what kids do, right? Kids are loud, and that's what they do. Now, uh, they better listen to mom and dad, or mom and dad, you know, tell them to quiet up at times. But truth be told, kids get loud. So, you know, uh, when when anytime we have a gathering at the house, the decibel level in the house goes up at least by 30 decibels, okay? It's significant. It, it goes from, uh, to, ah! That's how it works. Now, interestingly enough, we're at our house yesterday, and we're celebrating the birthday of my nephew, Saad, and we're all excited about it. Everything's fun. And we're sitting and we're talking, and my sister-in-law, just in a very eerily way, says, it's too quiet right now. It's, and sure enough, there wasn't a single peep out of anybody. You know what that means? That means the kids are all gathered together and they're doing something real dumb, right? 
Something real bad's about to happen. They're getting ready to light something on fire. They're strangling one another. Something bad is happening, right? So that's a signal. When you know it's quiet, oh man, something bad is about to happen. So my, you know, my sister-in-law is hip to that. She's wise enough to that and runs over to find out what's going on and stops the disastrous thing from taking place, you know? And in this instance, I don't know what it was that she saved total disaster from, but I'm sure it was a bad thing that was waiting to happen. And so this is the picture. The picture is this is a total calm before the storm. There's no wind. I mean, it's just quiet as could be. Nothing. You can't hear anything. That's a little scary, right? Look what happens here. It says in verse two, it says, and I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So here's uh, something kind of a interesting picture. In other words, they were given permission to pretty much when it says hurt here to destroy, to jack the earth up. Up with wind. Now, um, we know the capability of God in Mother Nature, as you would call it, right? To destroy with wind. You know, we've been freaked out over 185 mile an hour winds, you know, hitting the hitting the Puerto Rico and so on and so forth. The 185 mile an hour wind is no joke, right? That's pretty scary when you think about it. And I have a friend who lives in Puerto Rico, someone that we've been praying for, those of you that are on the prayer chain, and. Uh, he finally kind of came back up, right? After, uh, you know, the windstorm passed by, they have no power. He's on a generator just long enough to charge up his battery and get a signal. And he runs over to a place where there's a signal. He starts sending us pictures. And I cannot believe what the wind is looking like, what 185 mile an hour winds look like. I mean, he's showing pictures of these whole roofs of gas stations that are just wrapped around poles like a cloth. You just think it's just a cloth wrapped around the pole. I mean, that's how powerful these winds can be. And it's interesting because some of the winds that we have logged, the greatest power of some of these winds that we have logged, are you ready for this, guys? In upwards of 300 plus miles an hour. They they suspect that in some of the tornadoes that get pretty insane and crazy, that they can see winds that go up in upwards of 380 to 400 miles an hour. Guys, that's getting near the speed of sound. You get past 600 miles an hour, you're past the speed of sound. I mean, this wind is, it's, and, and, you know, when you get wind that, that blowing that hard, it destroys everything in its path. There is nothing you're going to be able to hold down to the ground when wind gets that hard. It destroys everything from bridges to concrete to things boasted in. And the Lord just says, okay, you know what? All of this, the, the earth is going to get jacked up. That's basically the, you want modern day vernacular. That's what it is. The earth is about to get jacked up with this wind. But it says you need to, before you let the wind go, there's, there's these people that need to be sealed. In other words, people that need to be protected. And who are the people? Well, we're going to talk about these people, right? So don't hurt the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. In other words, we're going to watch them. We're going to, we're going to seal these people, right? And it says, I heard a number of them which were sealed and there were sealed. Notice this, a hundred and forty and four thousand of the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, this is where things get a little crazy, okay? Because 
Everybody looks at this verse and they come up with all kinds of interpretations as into who this is, right? Uh, we hear different groups say different things. One of the most outrageous claims that's made is by a cult. You guys know the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are literally, they are a cult of Christianity. They, uh, some of the conclusions that they come to are absolutely unbiblical and definitely evil because they mislead people. They brainwash people into a way of thinking. And what they said early on, especially in their inception when they started, is they said, Said, well, the 144,000 is us. And when the number of 144,000 completes, well, then we're all going to be sealed by God and that's going to be it. And they kept saying that until the number of Jehovah's Witnesses grew beyond 144,000. Then their story changed. And they said, well, there's only going to be a select 144,000 of us and you better hope you're one of them. So these are the things you need to do in order to become part of the 144,000. Very evil. Very, very, very wicked uh, perspective. And then there are people from within the church that have wacky conclusions as into who this 144,000 is. They say, well, the 144,000 is the church. Baloney. It's not the church. There is, it's not spiritual. The church is not spiritual Israel. And there's many, many reasons for the fact that the church is not spiritual Israel. One of the most important reasons why the church can't be spiritual Israel is, first of all, the church was never referred to as Israel until roughly 160 A.D. That's the first recording that we ever have the church being referred to as Israel. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means when this was written, this was written somewhere around 90 A.D., which is 70 years before the church was ever referred to as Israel. No way in the world that John is going to refer to the church as Israel by you know writing this down seven years before. Now, the reason why people say that this is the church is because they um, do not want to believe that we're going to be raptured before the tribulation, so they've got to make up all these wacky conclusions in their ideas, and so that would bring us to the other reason why this can't be the church, because we are going to be raptured before the tribulation. Now, some people say, well, of course this isn't the church. This is talking about real Jews, but this is talking about Messiah messianic believers guys that know the lord well ah wrong if they're messianic believers in other words if they're jews and they have a relationship with jesus christ right now they are part of the church which means they're going to get raptured with us can't be why don't we take it literally how about we do that for a change right how about we look at what the bible says and take it literally what the bible tells us is that it's 144,000 jewish people Not only does it tell us it's 144,000 Jews, it even names the tribes in which they come from. Let's go over the tribes, right? And while I'm reading through the tribes, by the way, I think you ought to look for any subtleties you might see in the reading of these tribes. There are some interesting subtleties that we should probably talk about. We'll talk about it in just a second, right? So let's read through the tribes here. It says, 144,000, all the tribes of the children of Israel. We're talking about Jews here, no doubt, right? It says in verse 5, it says, of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher, right, were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephtali were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. 
of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Ishikar were sealed 12,000. By the way, it's interesting. You might have seen me pronounce things just a little bit differently. You might have seen it like in your Bible referred to Judah as J-U-D-A. Or you might see it referred to, like for example, when I read Asher, it says A-S-E-R, Aser, right? Uh, you might see it spelled a little bit differently. And that's why that's because it's transliterating from the Greek to the English, right? So that's the way it would have been pronounced in the Greek language. But what people don't realize is the way it's written in Greek is a transliteration from the Hebrew language. Okay, which is why I'm reading them the way you would read it in the Hebrew language. Actually, I'm not really quite doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reading it the way you'd read it in the Old Testament uh, uh, rendition of these words. Because if you read it the way you would read it in, in uh, Hebrew, it would sound completely different. Like, for example, we don't have a J sound in Hebrew. So if I were to read the name Judah, what I would actually say is I would say Yahuza. Right. It's a little bit different. Right. So it's uh, just like, you know, we talked about this. Right. I would never say Jerusalem in Hebrew. If I were to pronounce Jerusalem, I would say Yerushalim. Right. Or, for example, Capernaum. You would never say Capernaum. You don't say that in Hebrew. You would say Chapornechum. That's how you would say it in Hebrew. So very different, the pronunciations here. But anyway, that's, that's why you see a little bit of a, of a discrepancy in the, in, the, in the spelling of the names, but it has absolutely nothing to do with uh, anything of accuracy or anything like that. So of the tribe of Simeon, we're sealed 12,000. This is verse 7. Of the tribe of Levi, we're sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Ishakar, we're sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun, we're sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph, we're sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin, we're sealed 12,000. Benjamin, that's an interesting one, right? We, instead of Joseph, we would say Yusuf or Yashuf, right? Or Benjamin, we would say Benjamin, right? We wouldn't say Benjamin. Uh, kind of an interesting thing. So we're sealed 12,000. And after this, I be, well, let's stop. We'll just stop for just a second and, and just look at the 12 tribes. Now, as you've been reading through these tribes, you might have noticed a few anomalies, right? First of all, you might have noticed that there's two names missing from the common reading of tribes, right? And take a look for just a second. And let's see if you can identify them. I'll give you just a second to look at them, right? First of all, we do see the tribe of Joseph listed listed here, right? We do see Manasseh listed, but you don't see Ephraim listed. Normally, you don't even see Joseph listed in a list, right? Which is kind of unusual. And then how about this? How about the tribe of Dan is, is missing from here, right? It's interesting when people would read this, and I kind of thought this was, you know, the first time I read through this many, many years ago, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Dan is missing, right? And Ephraim is, is missing. That kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, that's kind of a, a, a sort of a, why is that the case? Well, as I started looking into it and you begin to read it, there are at least, you ready for this, guys? There are throughout the Old Testament at least 20 different accounts of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, when you say 20 different accounts, what does that mean? Well, they're written or they're, they're read, oftentimes are written, oftentimes 20 different ways. Now, why is Dan not listed here? Well, Dan is very likely, and this is just an assumption, but it's just a thought. Dan is very likely not listed here because Dan was the first tribe to lead the nation of Israel into idolatry. They were the first tribe to go into idolatry, so that might be the reason why it's not listed here. Now, slow your roll if you say that God is going to exclude the tribe of Dan, and, and Dan is not going to have any participation. God is, there's a lot of people that run around and say, God is going to destroy the tribe of Dan during the tribulation. Slow your roll if that's what you believe, because that's not what we understand to be biblical. Because if you read in Ezekiel 38, it actually talks about the tribe of Dan being the first tribe or one of the first tribes to be ushered into the millennial reign. 
So Dan is going to survive the tribulation. Even though they're not going to be sealed amongst these 144,000, they're definitely going to survive the tribulation. So you don't want to actually accuse or you don't want to actually make the assumption that Dan is going to exist because we know that they're going to be ruled, you know, ushered into the millennial reign. So of course we know that that, that is certainly not going to be the case. Now, why is it that you would see Joseph taking the place of Ephraim? Well, there, there, there are several reasons for what that might be. If you remember, Joseph had two sons, didn't he? His two sons were who? Ephraim and Manasseh, right? So when you read the reading of the 12 tribes, you never really heard the name of Joseph because Joseph, remembered, was, was represented by two tribes. If you did read the name of Joseph, well, then it kind of creates another bit of a predicament because through reading all the names, now you actually have 13 tribes. You don't have 12 tribes. And interestingly enough, oftentimes when you would see Ephraim and Manasseh read throughout all of the 12 tribes, you might not see the tribe of Levi mentioned. Why wouldn't the tribe of Levi be mentioned? For example, in the book of Joshua. Well, because the tribe of Levi I did not get an apportionment of land, if you remember, right? The Bible says that they were the tribe that actually their satisfaction, their portion was supposed to be the Lord. So they never got an apportionment of land. All the other tribes did. So when you would read the 12 tribes, you would read a listing of 12 actual tribes, not a single one of them being Levi to be listed amongst the 12 tribes. So there were different variations of this. Now, in this case, it's very likely that the reason why the name Joseph was listed uh, instead of Ephraim Well, first of all, I do believe that it is the tribe of Ephraim that they're referring to when they say Joseph. We know this because Manasseh is actually read here, right? We know that, but Ephraim is not. And when it says Joseph, well, we know. When he's saying Joseph, he's not talking about Ephraim and Manasseh because Ephraim was already mentioned. So now we know, or sorry, Manasseh was already mentioned. So we already know that it's got to be talking about Ephraim. It just makes sense, right? Kind of interesting uh, thinking about all this. It's a bit of an earful, I, I would say, right? You can go back and listen to the recording of me babbling about this whole picture. But to say the least, there is no real uh, inconsistency that exists here by seeing some of these um, tribes mentioned or not mentioned. A reality of it is Dan is the only one that would seem to be significant in the fact that it's not mentioned, but Dan is going to exist, right, after the millennial reign. So we know that. We know that, or through the millennial reign. So we know that, so we can't question, this is not God blotting out a tribe or anything. This just happens to be the way that these tribes were mentioned. And so these are the people that are going to be sealed, and they're going to have a purpose, and their purpose is going to be to preach the gospel. These are Jews that don't know the Lord right now, guys. These are Jews that have no right now in the world if 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 the lord comes back if he raptures the church right tomorrow if the church is raptured we are talking about 144,000 Jews that are living probably in Israel today that have no relationship with God but are about to be dealt with by God and eventually those 144,000 ready for this are going to be God's evangelists They're going to be the ones that are going to go forth as we read about in Revelation chapter 14. If you hit the fast forward button and you read it, the Lord talks about these these tribes tribes in Revelation chapter 14. And the Bible actually refers to them as the the faithful witnesses of God. They're going to be witnessing. They're going to be sharing uh, the the message of the gospel. And so this is a pretty powerful picture when you think about uh, kind of what we're seeing here. This is God protecting 144,000 of his own people, right? And look what it says in verse 9. And this is John continuing to talk and it says this it says after this 
I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds of people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Now, this is also a very interesting picture because we see uh, quite possibly what was referred to in Revelation chapter 6 as this great multitude of people that are sitting, uh, that are standing before the lamb, uh, or standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed with white robes. That's interesting. What's the significance with the white robes? Well, I can tell you what's the significance of the white robes is. The Bible says that we're wearing what? We're wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that brings to us salvation, and they've got palms in their right hand. So we see God is the one who delivers salvation. That's the symbolism, right? And the beautiful symbolism in them holding the palms, the palms was always a symbol of what? Victory. So the idea is they're standing victorious before the Lamb of God. That's, that's the idea. And, and who are these people? Well, it's pretty obvious who these people are, uh, but it is interesting. John is going to find himself asking this question. So let's move on and we'll get, the, we'll get the answer here, right? And it says in verse 11, it says, uh, And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, meaning so be it, right? Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto God forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is an interesting uh, moment that we see here. We see these angels that are falling down and they're, they're actually, or these elders that are falling down and they're worshiping the Lord and the beasts are doing it too and they're, they're just, they're literally worshiping God. And I do think that there's an interesting lesson that we get here from worshiping God. I, uh, this is why I tend to despise the behavior that I see oftentimes in many churches as they try to solicit emotions from people as they're worshiping God. And we see this a lot, right? You see the crazy smoke machines and you see all the madness that goes on and the, and the lights and the strobe lights. And I think sometimes those strobe lights are designed to like get you dizzy so you kind of fall asleep and, oh, you know, and, oh, do trip out. I had an awesome experience worshiping God. No, you passed out because you fell into some crazy red thing or something like that, right? But there's people that get up there and their whole design when they get up there is to solicit emotions from the people in leading worship and and that's what it is and you know what i've learned i've learned that the greatest worship that takes place results from a natural desire to do so when you witness and observe the goodness and the graciousness of god right I, I can sit in a room and people call me callous and people call me cold. I've actually been confronted. There are people, ever since I've been on the radio, man, I forgive me for saying this. I don't want to say this the wrong way, but sometimes the kooks come out. And I don't mean to say this in a disrespectful way or anything like that, but I remember being at a worship conference recently where I'm sitting there and it's in a dark room and, and I mean, literally, I mean, the room to me just invites fall asleep. That's what the room tells me. It's dark. It's kind of smoky. It's cool in there. It's like a movie theater. So I fell asleep. People are worshiping, praise God, and they're doing their thing, and the kids are standing up, and they're doing their thing, and I, you know, I, it's, I have a hard time relating to this generation anyway, you know, but they're all standing up, and they're doing their thing, and they're doing all their emotion, and I'm sitting there, the guy that's on the radio, and guess what I am? I'm hard out. I mean, I am like, I'm worshiping God in my own way. I'm asleep, and he's given me precious sleep is what's happening at that moment, Right? And I got a young kid that comes up to me and he confronts me and he says, you know, Pastor James, I really look up to you, but it really rubs me the wrong way to see you sleeping while everybody's worshiping. And I just asked this question. How many of these people that you see here, you suppose are actually worshiping God? 
How many of you think are actually worshiping God? Here's the reason why I ask. If you were able to follow every single one of these kids, what percentage of them would be leaving this place and going out and smoking weed? Or be leaving this place and going and doing whatever you want to call it? What's happening is you've got the most incredibly talented musicians in the world, and many of them very anointed by God, by the way, incredibly anointed by God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not minimizing or diminishing the call of God upon the lives of some of these kids, right? And they stand up and they lead and they're eliciting an emotion and people are getting emotional and they're like, oh my gosh, and oh Lord, and they're doing their thing and they're, and they're, they're getting all emotional. And in their emotion is when they have that moment where they lift up their hands to God or whatever and then they walk out of the, they walk out of the building, I hate you. Some of the greatest moments of worship that take place in our life is when this happens. Are you ready? Let me show you. It's not when you're in the room and you've got Santa Maria, Madre de Jesus, or that, or it's not when you're, you know, as we do in some many Calvary chapels, why is it praise you, Lord? And it's not when you're running across the room and you do, every sect of the church is guilty of this. The most intimate times of worship that oftentimes take place is when you are simply, let's say you're walking down the street, or maybe you're in your car, or maybe you just have this moment at your desk where you just have this enigma. It's like this weird awakening where you realize, man, God is so good, right? And then when you realize that, you can't help but to sing something. And some of you don't care because some of you can't sing, but you still sing it anyway, right? And something happens and all you find yourself doing is singing again and again and again. You're just singing and you can't stop singing. It just happens and it just is out of nowhere. You know, I see my wife do this all the time. We'll be driving down the street and man, I, I'm talking to her and in the middle of talking, she'll just, what? I know what's happening. There's a moment where she's just realizing the goodness of God. She loves the life she has because she's married to me, of course. And, you know, all the other things, all the wonderful things that are going on. And she just can't help it but to just simply say, Lord, I worship. And how many of us have had moments like that where amazing things are going on? Maybe amazing things are not going on. Maybe horrible things are going on. But you have this crazy peace in your heart. And when you have that peace, that peace just motivates you to action. You're like, Lord, I have this peace and I can't help myself. And Lord, I'm just going to praise you right now. This is precisely what's going on here in Revelation chapter 7. These people are in a place that is just incredibly overwhelming. They're recognizing the power and the mightiness of God. And they're recognizing the awe-inspiring motions and movements of the God that's before them. And they can't help it but to just simply praise God. It's a spontaneous act. It's not the... And everybody building it up and going and going and going and going. And before you know it, you're doing crazy things. It's none of that. It's just a spontaneous act that takes place in the heart of people. Now, standard disclaimer, okay? And I think I do need to mention this because it is an important thing to mention. There is a place for what we call worship today in the church, right? There is. Because there are times where we don't want to worship God. Because our emotions are telling us not to. And we know that the right thing to do is to worship God. And that's why it's important to have people stand before the body of Christ that are anointed to get up there and to lead. And there is a place for that. I'm not discounting you know, worship as we understand it today. But what I'm saying is that the, 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 the act of worship as we understand it today should not be limited to that which we see on stage. 
it, it should carry forth from that which goes on in our life. Why? Because in heaven it's going to be that way. Right? See, the picture that people tell me, and I get this from people that, at least the people that are honest, right? Especially new guys that I'm discipling. If somebody new that I'm discipling, they say this. Man, James, i got an issue, man. I'm really worried about something. And what are you worried about? My favorite, by the way, my favorite person to ever do this was Matthew's little son, Matt Perry. You guys might know him. He does worship here once a month. You know, he comes out here. He's a great brother. And he's a guy that I disciple. And he's got little boys. Boy's name is Joey. Joey is like the cutest kid in the world, right? He's just adorable. And I just tell you how cute he is. One day he comes running up to me. He goes, man, dad never told me about this rapture thing. If he told me about this rapture thing, I would have reconsidered my Christianity. Meaning like he was scared of the rapture. He didn't understand it, right? He's just an honest kid, right? And so we got him past that. Don't worry. You don't have to fear. It's going to be okay. It's going to be a good thing. And he gets that. So he comes up to me one day and he says, man, uh, I'm worried about something. I got a question for you. And he's talked about it with his dad multiple times, but you know, sometimes they, you know, the dad says, okay, well, let's talk to Pastor James about it. He might help you out a little bit more. Okay, so he comes up to me. He says, I got something that's just really bothering me. Says, what? He goes, I'm not scared of heaven anymore. Heaven's going to be okay. I know that. I'm looking forward to it. This is like five-year-old, six-year-old. He says, but it's going to be boring up there. I know where he's going with it. Joey, what do you mean boring? Everywhere I read, all they're doing is singing. It's going to be boring. I don't even like to sing. Oh, I got you. And I explained to him, I tried to at least in kid terms, right? That it's, you're not going to sing, not wanting to sing. You're going to want to sing when you're up there. It's kind of like the guy who says, I don't dance. I don't ever dance. I don't like to dance, you know? And he stands up there as stiff as could be. And he always do the little experiment. It's kind of fun. You play the music, right? And the music starts. And the guy who doesn't want to dance all of a sudden is beginning to, you know? And as, it, as the music gets a little bit more intense, and he's beginning to go. And before you know it, he's just cutting loose. He's going crazy, right? No one forced him to do that. He was moved to it, right? That's the way it's going to be in heaven. You're not going to be bored singing to the Lord. You're going to be moved. The reason why the songs are going to go forth to the Lord is because you're going to be moved to sing those songs to the Lord. That's what's going on here. That's what we're witnessing. Pretty heavy. And they cried with a loud voice. Let me just say this when we talk about crying with a loud voice. And I do want to sort of reiterate this. Crying with a loud voice, as you read it here in the King James, does not imply that they're crying because they're suffering. It implies that they are yelling at the top of their lungs because they're, they're doing it from a natural place. They're excited. Kind of like when you're on a roller coaster and you're going down, Wah! you know, you're kind of scared to a degree, but you're also having fun, right? That's what it's about. That's what's happening. They're excited about the things that they're seeing in heaven, right? Now, this is where it gets interesting. Look at verse 13. It says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? In other words, you know, who are these people that are in white robes? And where'd they come from? And, of course, John was probably wanting to ask that question himself, right? And, and notice this. John says this. He says, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest... 
And he said to me, these are they which came out of the great tribulation, or sorry, out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, by the way, when it says out of great tribulation, some of you might say, you might see it phrased the great tribulation. And that's why, uh, that's because in the Greek language, it is actually quite emphatic. It actually, there is a, a term that we use in the Greek language that emphasizes that right there, that word the, and that is emphasized here. So when we talk about the great tribulation, what are we talking about? We're talking about the last three and a half years when the Antichrist sets himself up to be God and begins to kill anybody who refuses to worship him, right? When you don't take the mark of the beast, that's what it's talking about. So what it's talking about here is it's talking about those that have been martyred, right? Those that have been killed for living as a witness for the Lord. Now, I think that what's, I think what's powerful about this, by the way, is that it's just a symbol of God's grace. Let me show you how much of a symbol of God's grace it is. It said, it said this, it says that they, at the very end of this, it says, and have washed their robes and made them, notice this, white in the blood of the Lamb. That's interesting. You have a robe. You don't necessarily make a robe white by blood. But did you notice the, the robe is made white because of the blood of Jesus? Like Isaiah says, right? My sins are like scarlet. But Jesus Christ, his blood, it makes the, the robes white. You get that picture. Interestingly enough, I do think that it should be pointed out here. And I think it should be considered. What we're talking about here is we're talking about people, as I said before, who are being martyred during the tribulation because they refuse to take the mark of the beast. But this is always the point where I take a moment to discuss the idea that there are lots of people that I've spoken to throughout the years. And maybe someone's listening to me on the radio or on the live stream, or maybe there might even be somebody in this room who might say, well, you know what? I'm just going to wait to accept the Lord in my heart. And if I end up not getting raptured, I just won't accept the mark. Here's the question that I would ask you. If you don't have the strength with the help of the Holy Spirit right now on this earth to accept Jesus Christ into your life, what makes you think you're going to have strength on the earth at the time when you don't have any of that help to say no to the beast? You're not going to. Especially when God himself sends down strong delusion, as Thessalonians tells us. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Right? God's grace does show in that we, we find out that tons of people get saved. Tons of people during the tribulation. Right? They do. They'll, these are the people we're talking about here. They get saved. By the way, these are not the church, just so that you know, in case there's any confusion here. We're not talking about the church. The church is before the rapture. Right? Those that accept Christ before the rapture. These people are not numbered as the church. Look what it goes on to say in verse 15. It says, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, right? And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. This kind of brings us into the sort of the Revelation chapter 20 picture, right? And it says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sunlight on them, nor any heat, 
For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall notice this, shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, I've had many people say, well, does this imply that when you're in heaven, you're going to be crying because you see your unsaved loved ones not in heaven? Is that what it means? When God, it says that God is going to wipe away your tears. I do not believe that this is what this is talking about. I don't think it has anything to do with this. When it says that God will wipe away your tears, I think it is a figurative way of saying that there will be no crying up there, right? No pain, no suffering, no crying, no loss. Now, again, Going back to the sentiment that I shared with you this morning, earlier this morning, we have a lot to look forward to, don't we, folks? Don't we? Look, we're not going to be a part of any of the judgments that come forth. This parenthetical that we see in chapter 7 as part of what's in chapter 6 is another eye-opening understanding of what's going to take place. The description of this 144,000 gets a little bit more involved in Revelation chapter 14. We'll kind of get a better picture of these, of these saints, uh, well not these saints, of these witnesses that we read about, right? And we'll, we'll sort of get a picture of God's dealing with them um, and, and we'll sort of have a better idea of what they do. But interestingly enough, we're not going to be a part of any of that. And if you have friends that are Jewish, they don't have to be a part of any of that either, do they? Because Jewish or not, no matter where they come from, if they're alive today and they accept Jesus Christ into their life, they can be part of the church. They can be the, the saints that we know of right now. Our group of saints, they can be part of that. And they can enter into heaven just like you will and just like I will. They can be a part of that. Look, when we get into chapter 8 next week and the seventh seal opens, ugh, let me tell you, it's not going to be a pretty situation. We're going to learn of great destruction and suffering as we continue to see. And interestingly enough, we'll continue to see glimpses of the grace of God through all of this process. You know, the biggest picture of the grace of God through all of this is understanding that, again, I'll say it again and again and again, we won't be there, right? That's the best part of it. None of us are going to be there. Amen? We can be encouraged about that. We can be excited. Great stuff as we jump into this book. Lots of things to learn. Really, actually, not as confusing as people think, right? It's pretty basic. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Once you sort of shed a little bit of light on it, it becomes very easy to understand and and, and a a really good foundation for what we're going to keep learning in the future. So let's pray and ask the Lord to go before us. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, as we have been going through this end time series and we've been sort of learning so much about what you've been telling us and what you want to tell us and the things that are going on in our lives and our hearts. Thank you for this book that we can learn much. You promise that those of us that study this book will actually be blessed by you. And so, Lord, that's our desire, to gain that blessing from you. So go before us now, Lord, as we continue on in your word. Uh, Keep us looking to you, excited about what you have for us in the future. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.